Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. For today's readings, we're taking a look at Proper 3 for Year B. Proper 3 is the earliest possible reading after Holy Trinity Sunday, after Pentecost. I don't know if technically we'll call Pentecost Proper 1 and Trinity Proper 2. There are no 1s and 2s. You just start with 3. But we often don't even start at 3. So Proper 3 will only show up when Easter falls as early as it possibly can fall. Otherwise, as the date of Easter moves back on the calendar, you're running out of weeks until you get to Christmas, which is the other central point of the church calendar. And so Proper's which go range from 3 to 29. They fill in the, those summer months here. And again, proper 3 is going to be a rare text. Anyway, because of that, and Epiphany kind of working the opposite way earlier in the year, before Easter and Lent, there's actually overlap in the Epiphany proper readings here. We have Hosea 2, verses 14 to 20, which would be the Epiphany 8 Old Testament text. Our gospel is Mark 2, optionally verses 13 to 17, and then including 18 to 22. That is also in line with Epiphany 8, or the 8th Sunday after Epiphany. However, the epistle text is different. It's Acts chapter 2, verses 14a, and then picking up again at verse 36 and going until verse 47, whereas with the 8th Sunday after the Epiphany, it was from 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and 3, So that's our one distinction for this episode today. So I will reuse those Hosea 2 and Mark 2 lessons with the text in between, the Acts 2 reading being unique for this episode. So as we begin today, we're going to start out with the Hosea 2 text, verses 14 to 20. But in order to truly grasp this text, we need the context. Hosea chapter 1 through 3. It's not an easy read, but it is a profound read. And this is essentially one of the boldest proclamations of the gospel in all of Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. Essentially, the Lord calls on his prophet Hosea in the middle of the 8th century B.C., 740-ish, somewhere around there. He calls his prophet Hosea, to marry a prostitute. And essentially, to keep on loving her no matter what she does. And so as she sins against her husband by being unfaithful, he forgives her. He brings her home. As she does it again, he forgives her. He brings her home and so forth. And it gets to the point by chapter 3 where she's gotten herself into such a mess that he has to buy her back. She has become another man's sexual slave. And he buys her back and brings her home. Now there's more that goes on in this living prophecy, this action prophecy of Hosea as his life as he marries this woman, Gomer. They're going to have three children together. And he's very specifically told to give these kids strange names. So we're going to see chapter 1, 
They're going to have a son named Jezreel, which means God sows. It's going to be a, both a sowing of destruction and judgment, but also a sowing of grace and mercy, which is a bit of what we get in our text in chapter 2 today. They're going to have another child, a daughter, and they're to name this child Lo-Ruhamah, which is Hebrew for no mercy. No, like is in the opposite of yes, no mercy. And then the third child, Lo-Ami, not my people. These names are God's judgment being decreed against his people. Because this action prophecy Hosea is living out with Gomer is a metaphor for the church. It's a metaphor for God's relationship with his people. We are Gomer. We run away chasing after idols day after day, rejecting, rebelling against our husband who is yet faithful to us as he continues to love us and reach out to us and come for us. And so Hosea has to do this. And there is mercy and there is grace that even though the judgment is brought upon the unfaithful spouse, even though God punishes Israel for its rebellion, he still restores. And so the children's names become reversed. Jezreel, we already mentioned. The low, the no or not beginning to the other two names is just dropped off. So lo Ami becomes Ami, my people. Lo Ruhamah, no mercy, becomes Ruhamah, mercy. And as we see in chapter 3, Hosea having to go and buy his wife back. Chapter 3, by the way, just five verses long, so feel free to give that one a read. As he has to go and buy his wife back, so God had to buy us back. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to do so. And that's going to be a good chunk of what our text in chapter 2 is actually about. So Hosea lives out this prophecy very vividly for the whole people to see. Why did the prophet of God marry that prostitute? What's going on here? Well... Hosea represents the Lord, and the prostitute represents the people. All right, so that whole context, very useful here. And even though it's one of the kind of, again, boldest proclamations of the gospel in all of the Old Testament, we don't get it in the three-year lectionary. It doesn't come. This is it. This is the only part of that whole thing that will show up. So let's read our text. Verses 14 and 15 are a separate paragraphs, so we'll start with those. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards, and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Again, God allowing judgment, God bringing judgment against faithless Israel. She has been cast out. She's going into exile. But the Lord will not leave her there. This text declares that God will bring her back. He will rescue his people from that exile, from the hands of Assyria, from the hands of Babylon. To allure, he's going to draw her back to himself, the church. 
He's going to bring her into the wilderness, which here is a reference really to the promised land, which with the destruction by Assyria in 725 to 22 BC of Israel and then Babylon in 587 of Judah, the promised land is a wasteland. Things are leveled, destroyed. Oftentimes the prophets will talk about how it becomes a haunt for jackals and ostriches. Wild animals dwell there because no man is to be found. So this is our wilderness and she is being restored, brought home. And God will speak tenderly to her. We have a couple of the marriage words here. Allure, right? It's often talked about, especially probably in our culture of the female, uh, how alluring she is. This is actually said of the Lord. He's going to allure. He's going to restore her love for him and speak tenderly to her instead of harshly. That's going to get into our second paragraph in the New Covenant. We'll get to that in a, in a little bit here. He's going to give her her vineyards. Again, restoring to her that which is good, bringing her home, welcoming her back, and providing for her again. Just as Hosea will do for Gomer, so God does for Israel. And make the valley of Accor a door of hope. The valley of Accor is around the city of Jericho, which you may recall from the early parts of the book of Joshua when the Israelites are entering the promised land, they destroy the city of Jericho, and God had commanded them to devote everything to destruction, not to keep anything for themselves. But there was one among them who did. Achan, A-C-H-A-N. Achan kept some things, buried them back in his tent. He was found out. How was he found out? God removed his favor from the people. They went to battle at the next city. They were going to try and conquer the city of Ai, Ai, and they failed. They lost. And so they recognized God's favor has left us. Why? And they were able to learn that it was because they had not fully devoted Jericho to destruction. So Achan causes this trouble, and that's the name of the valley, where they end up executing Achan, the valley of Accor, and that is the Hebrew word for trouble. So named after the situation. So this valley of trouble, this valley of Accor, is going to be reversed. It's going to become a door of hope. Hope. Why? Because they're returning from exile. They're coming home again. Trouble reversed. And now it is good. They have life. There she shall answer as in the days of her youth. Time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Now that the latter one's easier to recognize. We're talking about the Exodus there. Right around Exodus 12, the Passover account, how Israel is faithful. They listen to the Lord's instructions. They sacrifice the lambs at twilight. They paint the blood of the lamb over their doorposts. They go to their neighbors and they ask for gold and other things, and the neighbors give it to them. Right, They're faithful in that moment. It doesn't last long, but they were faithful in that moment. 
she will answer as in the days of her youth. This is a picture God gives that long ago she wasn't a prostitute. So you think of Gomer, the actual woman that is as part of this prophecy. Gomer wasn't always a prostitute. There was a day when she was a girl, just a child filled with vibrancy and dreams of what the future may hold. Probably, likely, dreams of getting married and having a faithful marriage and having a family. Whatever went south, whatever went wrong, she turned into the life of prostitution. But restoration. And so it is with Israel. When they first came out of Egypt, they weren't plotting and planning to rebel against God and to worship false gods and to do all these terrible things they end up doing, like building altars to these foreign gods and worshiping them, sacrificing to them, even sacrificing their own children to them. Long ago when she was young, when she was not yet a prostitute, when she was not yet chasing after idols. She will answer. God is seeing that his people can be faithful. He's calling them back to that faith from before. That brings us to our second paragraph. And in that day, declares Yahweh, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever, and I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know Yahweh. The picture is definitely of restoration, but the imagery, the language used here, pushes this to a conversation that is not just about when God rescues his people from Babylonian exile in 538 BC under Cyrus of Persia. This picture is so much more. There's perfection here. And so when we read those first words, in that day, declares Yahweh, think of that day as the last day, the day of judgment, when God returns and brings us home. And at that point, truly, we will no longer call upon the name of the Baals. We won't want to. Baal, or some will probably pronounce it Baal, is a Hebrew word for Lord or Master. But it also ends up being, being used as the name of one of the ancient false gods, pagan gods, primarily the god of the Canaanites. Like a god of sea and storm, if I recall correctly. But yeah, the Hebrew word for Lord or Master. But no longer will they use these idolatrous names. God will take that away. When we get to paradise someday, sin is gone. There is no more sin, suffering, pain, sorrow, tears. It's all done away with. Death is defeated. And so here we're seeing that already. A promise. That idol worship will be gone. 
Instead, they will call him husband. We will call him husband. Because, again, New Testament uses the same husband-wife kind of language. Jesus Christ is the groom, and we as the church are his bride. No more sin. It will be done away with. Thanks be to God. I will make a covenant for them. As a reminder, the Hebrew phrase there is actually cut, cut a covenant throughout the Old Testament because sacrifices are made to make covenants. But the fact that this covenant is made with all of creation again points to something greater. I would like to talk about the new covenant, right? Talk about Jesus Christ and what he does on Maundy Thursday as he prepares to offer up his own body and blood for us as the perfect sacrifice that takes away sin. And he gives us his body and blood in the Lord's Supper to partake of. In that covenant, take, eat, take, drink. This is what we are given to do. It's not hard. We simply receive the good gift, we receive the meal, and we enjoy it, and he gives the forgiveness. He gives the food, we receive it. Jeremiah 31 uses that same kind of new covenant language. But once more, this seems to be pointing to something more, something deeper, something further. And pausing on that for a second. The Lord's Supper could arguably be described as the greatest gift in creation. There, there is nothing in this world better than Christ's body and blood in, with and under the bread and the wine as you receive it. It is not just the high point of the church service. It is the high point of all things. The forgiveness of sins won for us by Jesus. But at that it's still a foreshadowing of something better, of the heavenly feast that knows no end, of that meal that we get to partake of with Christ in paradise forever, as he will provide for us. The marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom, which never ends. And so this is too. This is a greater covenant a picture of God's restoration of creation, a picture of a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no war any longer and he will help them lie down in safety. Now, there's moments, sure, where ancient Israel brought back from exile, brought back to the promised land, restored, rebuilt the temple. There are going to be moments where they can lie down in safety. But war is not gone. They will be persecuted and attacked, besieged, all kinds of things in the centuries to come. So again, a picture of the end is definitely in view. And the next sentence says as much, I will betroth you to me forever. The marriage of Christ and his bride, the church, which never ends. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. All four of those are key Old Testament themes. To be righteous is to be holy, perfect, without sin, without blemish. However, for us sinners, we see this beginning with Abraham. 
He is counted as righteous because of faith. He believed what God said and was counted righteous. Genesis 15. So we as Christians today, we talk about righteousness in view of Christ. That he is righteous. That he kept God's law perfectly. And he makes his righteousness ours. He gives us his own righteousness as he takes our sin upon himself. Justice. The Lord cares for, provides for all people, and he gives authority to the ones he gives authority so that they will protect and care for those under their authority. And that began with creation in Genesis 2, 1 and 2, that he gave to Adam and Eve dominion over all of creation. They were to care for it. It is the brokenness of sin that turns us against each other instead of caring for one another. And so the Lord cares for his people and he calls us to do the same. Steadfast love is the really difficult Hebrew word hesed, which it's difficult because there's just no one word English translation for it. Steadfast love covenant faithfulness, even mercy, loyalty, um, agape, unconditional love is another phrase I like to attach. God never gives up. He never goes back on his promises. He has vowed that he will be faithful to us, and he will. And mercy which here we can talk certainly about forgiveness, that he forgives his unfaithful and adulterous bride. He welcomes her home. He welcomes us home. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Notice everything in the last verse was his character, and so is this one. The Lord is faithful. You and I may not be. Okay, we're not. We're not right now. We will be in paradise. As again, sin will be taken away. There will be no more temptations. We'll be fully faithful then. We struggle with it now. But this is his faithfulness to us. And so he says, you shall know Yahweh. And that is the Old Testament deeper meaning for this word know. Genesis 4, for example, that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. It's a reference to the picture of marriage, the intimacy, even sexual intimacy of husband and wife. And so this is building on words we've seen all through this section. I will allure her, speak tenderly to her. You will call me my husband. You shall know Yahweh. And this is good. Thanks be to God that he calls us his bride. Thanks be to God that he had mercy upon us and brought us back from our idolatrous ways to his peace, to his mercy, to his love. Our epistle reading, not really an epistle, the second reading is from Acts chapter 2, and it's broken up. We have verse 14a, 
And then we have verses 36 to 47. Acts chapter 2 verse 14a may just be the most common part of a Bible verse used in the entire series of the lectionary because it gets used frequently with the different Pentecost day readings which all cover Acts chapter 2 verses 1 to 21. But then on Trinity Sunday as well as the the following Sunday you would have in the various years of the calendar this Pentecost sermon broken up and read in two chunks. So Acts chapter 2 verse 14a and then verses 22 to 36 is going to be your reading for Trinity Sunday every year, followed by Acts chapter 2 verse 14a verses 36 to 41 in another year. And here in now year B, we're going to have verses 36 to 47. So all these little variants of the same reading. Acts chapter 2, verse 14a, getting included in all of them. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. So Peter's preaching on Pentecost. Let's double back and let's cover what Pentecost is. And I'm going to go back to the Old Testament first, the idea that Pentecost is the Feast of Weeks. You can read about this in Leviticus chapter 23, where the Jews were to celebrate, God's people of Israel were to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. That is, as they receive the first fruit of the barley harvest, the first sheaf of barley harvested that year, they are to bring it to the priest. The day after the Sabbath, he is to offer it as a wave offering to the Lord. Then they are to count out seven weeks of days from the raising of that wave offering of the barley, so that would be 7 times 7 is 49 days. So you've got that thing in math where if you're trying to do the difference, right, you, you count both. So if I want to know how many days, for example, my vacation is, how many vacation days I'm using, and I'm going to take off the 21st through the 27th, I don't do 27 minus 21, which would be 6. I have to count both the 21 and the 27, which would be 7. And so it is here. If you count both that first day where the wave offering is given and then that final day of the 49, you end up at 50. And 50, in the Greek language, the, the word for 50th is Pentecoste, which gives us our English word Pentecost. So the Feast of Weeks is a celebration of the, the early harvest of one of their crops, the crop of barley, a recognition that it is the Lord who provides. However, important in this context now is that Pentecost is one of the Jewish pilgrimage festivals, that three times a year every Jewish male is to go to the city of Jerusalem, to the temple, to make an offering. We have first Passover, which is the first month of the year, the 14th day, and then Pentecost, which would fall in the third month of the year. And then you have, finally, the Feast of Booths, which is going to be in the seventh month of the year, the 15th through the 22nd of the month. Those are their three feasts that they go to Jerusalem for, which means that as the disciples are in that house where they are gathered together and the Holy Spirit comes down upon them, they're baptized by Holy Spirit and fire just as John the Baptist said they would be. They receive the gift of the Holy Spirit just as Jesus promised in Acts 1 that they would. As they start to speak in tongues, there are men from every nation under heaven 
who hear them preach, and they hear them preaching in their own language, this beautiful miracle of the apostles speaking what essentially is a universal tongue, that what Peter is saying, together with the other 11, as they preach that day, everyone present, again, every nation under heaven, can understand in his own language. Imagine having a group of 12 men standing next to each other, and they're all speaking in different languages in your room right now, where you are. Would you even be able to understand one of them? Would you even be able to pick out the guy who's speaking in your language? Probably not. It would be a bunch of babble because their talk would be running together. Even when we have two people speaking in the same language at the same time, it confuses us. So to have these apostles, these 12, all speaking at the same time and everybody hearing and understanding, this is truly a beautiful miracle that seems to be a one-time occurrence. Now, we actually today skip pretty much all of that. We skip Peter's Pentecost sermon with the exception of his final statement as he has rebuked them for the crucifixion of Jesus, that they have crucified the Lord. He is going to call them to repent of that. But he ends his sermon by saying this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Let all the house of Israel, that would be God's Old Testament people, now at this point known as the Jewish people, know for certain, without any doubt, God made him Lord. God made him Christ. Christ is the Greek word Christos for anointed one, which in the Hebrew Old Testament is Mashiach, Messiah, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one that they were waiting for to come to be their prophet, their priest, and their king. He came. God raised him up and made him Lord over all, and you killed him. The promise you've been waiting thousands of years for, the promised one came and you put him to death. That's how he ends the sermon. And what happens? Verse 37, they're cut to the heart. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Which again, this miracle of a preaching has already been the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now works on the hearts of men and he brings them to repent. As they grieve, as they're cut to the heart, they ask Peter and the other apostles, so all of them, what shall we do? Notice they call them brothers recognizing the Jewish origin for both at this point. The gospel will go out to all nations. We'll see that later. But these are Jews. So is Peter, James, and John. That's where they're from. This is their history. The Old Testament is their Bible. They don't have a New Testament yet. And so Peter responds, Two things. Repent, be baptized. Repentance. The word literally means to turn. So when we repent, we're turning away from our sin and we're turning to something else. Now, good repentance would be to turn to the Lord. But you can repent negatively. You can repent from one addiction to another. You can repent from one sin to another, but we can also repent by turning to the Lord and trusting in him. That is the work again of the Holy Spirit. I cannot 
by my own reason or strength come to know Jesus Christ or believe in him, I do not have the ability on my own to repent. The Spirit works that in me. The Spirit works that in you. Thanks be to God. And the Spirit worked it in them that day that they would repent and then be baptized. Baptism is not my act. It's not something I do. It's something that is done to me, for me. That's a very Lutheran understanding of it, isn't it? But it's what he says right here in the text. It's passive. It's not an act of the man, but it's a gift. What's the gift? Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism does something. It does something incredible. It gives you forgiveness. It is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on his people. When you are baptized, the Spirit comes upon you, creates faith in you, forgives your sins, washes you clean. You are his. Thanks be to God. So many in the church today would refute that and say baptism is the work of man. It is not something God does. There's nothing given to man in baptism. Well, this text would disagree. Especially as you continue. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Again, those who believe baptism is the work of man, they won't baptize their kids. They wait until their children are older, until their children can better understand and confess their faith on their own, and then they'll baptize. The Bible does not speak of such an age of accountability. Instead, it says, look here, the promise for you and for your children. The early church practice baptism of infants. You don't have the push to not baptize an infant until the 16th century. As far as I'm aware, it's a new invention in the church. Baptize your kids. This is good. Let me take you to an argument that happened in the early church. There was a man named Phidus who wanted theologically, beautifully, to connect baptism to the Old Covenant and circumcision, the idea that circumcision is to the Old Covenant, the entry point, as baptism is to the New Covenant. And so we should baptize on the eighth day, was his argument. Now here's the response he received from the Council of Carthage in 251 A.D. As to what pertains to the case of infants, you, Phidus, said that they ought not be baptized within the second or third day after their birth, that the old law of circumcision must be taken into consideration, and that you did not think that one should be baptized and sanctified within the eighth day after his birth. In our council, it seemed to us far otherwise. No one agreed to the course which you thought should be taken. Rather, we all judge that the mercy and grace of God ought to be denied to no man born. 251 AD, Council of Carthage unanimously agreed that parents should not wait until the eighth day of their child's life to bring them to be baptized, but instead that they should baptize them immediately. 
that would challenge us as a even church today where we wait months oftentimes sometimes longer baptize it's a beautiful gift from god let's receive it also this promise is for all who are far off jesus john chapter 10 verse 16 talking about how there are other sheep who are not yet in the sheep pen he has to go and bring them also many Old Testament prophecies about how Jesus would be the Savior, not just for the Israelites, but for all nations, starting in Genesis 3 with the promise of a Savior from sin, but even picking up when, when God promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 and following that he will be the one whose offspring will bless many nations. That offspring is singular. Who is the one who will come from Abraham that blesses all nations. It's Jesus. Good stuff. All right. So he continued to bear witness to them. Luke does not record all those words for us. He continues to exhort them, to admonish them, to live out this faith. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. That could be said just as easily today. Many don't live the path Christ has laid out for us. Early Christians were called the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The words of Jesus in John 14. No one comes to the Father except through me. You are forgiven. Your sins have been taken away. But that's not a free pass to go out and sin how you want. It's a call to live in that, to live in that hope, to live this new life that has been given to you. What happens? What's the result? They're baptized. 3,000 souls, about 3,000 men baptized that day. This is considered by some to be the birthday of the church because they go from just having roughly 100-ish people, 120, to now 3,120, right? A, A giant growth in one day. Why? Miracle of the Holy Spirit. Don't expect this miracle repeated. It's a good thing. But it's a one-time event as the church is started, as the Spirit is brought into this world. All right, second paragraph of our text. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They devote themselves, that is, these 3,000 newly baptized baby Christians, They devote themselves to three or four things, depending on how you break it up. The apostles' teaching, so everything that Peter and and others are going to tell them about Jesus. The fellowship, and this is where it gets tricky, is fellowship a reference to the breaking of bread, or are those two separate things? I know some faithful, solid theologians who would take that either way. Many would talk about fellowship of the church as being our breaking of bread together in the Lord's Supper. 
Many also will talk about fellowship simply as being the church being together, gathered. That's an interesting conversation point. How often did the church have the Lord's Supper? It's hard to answer that question. At least weekly, that much is clear in the early church. But there do seem to have been some groups who were receiving the Lord's Supper together every day. And verse 46 could be read that way. Come back to that. So they're praying together as well. This is important to the life of the church. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, so being together with other Christians, breaking of bread, so whether that's the Lord's Supper or that's simply having a meal together, you can see how either one connects to fellowship, the gathering, and then praying, talking to the Lord and trusting our troubles to him. All, that is fear, came upon every soul, The fear of God was in these people as they watched God work. That's what the book of Acts is about. The Lord working, Holy Spirit working through his church. The apostles are able to do miracles. We see that many times in the New Testament. I'm of the mind that while they could do a miracle and they could share faith to another, they did not have the ability to pass miracles on. Like they couldn't lay on hands and make you a miracle worker. That was not a gift that they had to give. That the apostles are able to do miracles for a specific purpose for a specific time as the church is born. And after that, it is simply the preaching of God's word that carries and supports and nourishes his church. This is called the cessation of of gifts it's not all gifts but of some of them like speaking in tongues and healing and such all right all who believed had all things in common they were selling their possessions giving to the poor as they had need definitely not the way we live today a call of generosity here in the text for us as Christians to certainly consider. I'm not saying we have to lump everything together in one big pile, but we should be generous. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. How often did they go to temple? Daily. Many Christians today can't even bother attending the gathering of the Christian church together weekly, let alone daily. And they broke bread together, which again could be a reference to the Lord's Supper. There are a couple of LCMS churches that receive Christ's body and blood together every day. And if you talk to anyone in that community who partakes of that, they would tell you what a wonderful benefit and blessing it is. Imagine the community that can be built around Christ's body and blood daily, over a week, over a month. Imagine seeing the same brother every day for five years, every day for 10 years. The relationship that can be had there is deeply strengthened and encouraged. And as you come together over forgiveness, reconciliation, good, good things. Now, this is not a mandate. I'm not saying that Christians for the last hundreds of years 
are going to hell. Not at all. I'm just pointing out the goodness of the gift and that it's good to receive it often. If that opportunity is there, make use of it. Enjoy it. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, and having favor with all people. A couple of things there, right? Praising God, so giving thanks for what they receive, but also having the favor of the people. The Lord made them favorable. We see that before, right? Think Joseph in the book of Genesis and how the Lord made him favorable in the eyes of Potiphar or Esther favorable in the eyes of Ahasuerus or Xerxes, the king of Persia. I mean, this is not unnormal, abnormal, but the Lord does this. He makes his people favorable in the sight of others. Why? So that others will praise God. That's the next sentence, that they're added day by day to those who are being saved. This is Matthew 5. It's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount tells us we do good works, so that our neighbor may see them and glorify God who is in heaven. You and I, we are here to love God and to love our neighbor. And so as we do, the Lord works through that to share that hope, to make us a light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden the salt of the earth. So we see the church here in Acts 2. We see what they were doing daily. As they, they dwelled in proximity to each other, they gathered every day. They may have had the Lord's Supper every day. They heard the teaching of the disciples, the apostles, which is the teaching of Jesus. Because that's who Jesus is when we learn about his teaching. When we learn God's word, we're learning about Jesus because Jesus is the word. And this is good. We come now to our gospel text. It is Mark chapter 2. And for all the three-year congregations, it'll be verses 18 to 22. But your pastor does have the option of adding on verses 13 through 17, which will connect it back to what we read on the seventh Sunday after the Epiphany. So we'll start with 13 and 14 as our first paragraph, then we'll do 15, 16, 17, and finally the, the reading of 18 to 22 is actually just one paragraph, so three chunks for us here. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. He, Jesus, has been doing his earthly ministry already here very quickly. Mark's not wasted a lot of time or ink on really the first 30 years of Jesus' life. He just jumps right in, has Jesus out and about preaching the good news from one town to the next. So he's out there beside the sea. That would be the Sea of Galilee, which is where he's going to, he's going to live around there with the disciples, probably Capernaum for the most part, but doing a lot of ministry in that Galilee region, all around the sea, but also off to the west a little bit of it. And crowds, like they already have been, come to him. And as they come, he teaches them. This is again from Mark chapter 1. This is what he has come to do, that is, to preach the word of God. He has not come to do the miracles. He does miracles out of compassion, but that's not why he's come. He's come to teach the people of God. And this is what he's going to teach the disciples, too, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew 28. Jesus 
tells them, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Make disciples of all nations. Well, how do you do that? What's that look like? It's two parts. Baptize them and teach them. So, same thing for us as Christians today as we follow Jesus. We seek to teach his word to others. So, as he's going by where he is, he sees a man named Levi. Now, Levi will sound most familiar to the Christian reading scripture because of the Levites, the descendants of Levi, the son of Jacob, one of the twelve sons of Israel. I would say tribe. They don't get their own allotment of land, though. They are the priestly tribe. This is not that man. This Levi happens to be better known to you as Matthew. This is Matthew, the disciple. He's sitting at the tax booth. That means he's a tax collector. That means, in the Jewish mind, he's a traitor. Consider big picture here of who the Jews expect their Messiah to be. And you'll see this as you move through the Gospels. You'll see the disciples believe this to be true as well. They believe the Messiah comes to rescue them from their oppressors, just like the old book of Judges in the Old Testament. They'd be oppressed by one kingdom because of sin. They'd be oppressed, and God would send a judge, a deliverer, a military champion to rescue them from that oppression and give them peace again. That's what they expect the Messiah to do, to rescue them from their oppressors and establish Israel, the throne of David in Jerusalem forever, 2 Samuel 7, to establish Israel as a nation again. So how... How can you be a faithful Jew and serve Rome? Our oppressor. The Romans are keeping us down. The Romans are the ones who are terrorizing our communities. They're the ones who aren't allowing us to have that kingdom of our own. How can you go and serve them? How can you take Jewish money and give it to the Romans? You're building their empire for them. How, you traitor? That's the, the picture. I'm not saying it's truthful, because that view of what the Messiah was coming to do is not correct. As you and I know, the Messiah did not come to overthrow Rome. He came to overthrow sin, death, and the devil, and he did it. But it is why, as you go through the Gospels, you'll see the people hate the tax collectors so much. It's not just because they're taking taxes for the government. It's because it is the opposite of who they think they're supposed to be. We already hate tax collectors, right? I mean, there aren't a lot of people living in the United States who like the IRS. And that's just people doing a job in a land where we don't have this Again, false hope of a new kingdom. And we have a hope of a new kingdom because Christ's kingdom is not of this world and you and I are already a part of that new kingdom through the waters of baptism. 
But you'll see that hatred flow, flow on through the text, even today. It's going to be in verses 15 to 17 here in just a moment. But first, Jesus simply calls Matthew. He calls Levi. He says, follow me. And Matthew does. Matthew, who has been now hated by the Jewish people, Matthew sets aside his work as a tax collector, and he follows Jesus. Are there implications in that? Something to ponder. It's not quite Paul level, where Paul is an enemy of the church and going around killing Christians until Jesus converts him on the road to Damascus. Now all of a sudden he goes around preaching of Jesus. But is it really all that far off? Matthew is seen by them as an enemy, and now he's going to side with Jesus? What is this? But on the other hand, we can simply look at this and say, what a response of faith. Just like the other disciples as well had, when Jesus called them, they go. Like Abraham, Genesis 12, God calls him, go where I will show you, and he goes. What faith. May the Lord give us such faith. All right, verses 15 to 17. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. A little pronoun clarification in verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house. I don't know that we even need to figure out who the first he is that's reclining at table because they all are. They didn't sit at the table, they reclined at the table in the picture of New Testament era homes. You didn't have a table like we do in our homes that's on legs and stands up quite tall where you need a chair to sit at it. You had a low table to the ground, if anything, sometimes even perhaps just a a blanket of some kind. You would put your food on that table in the center, and then you would lay down on your side, using one hand, one arm, to prop up your head. So, you know, think of your elbow on the ground and your hand on your head. And then you'd use your other arm to reach in and grab food, which you could then pull off to your own separate plate or, I guess, just eat directly. So they're all reclining at the table to eat in his house. That's the point I said we need to clarify. Luke chapter 5 gives us the clarification. This is Matthew's house. So the his here is Levi. This is Levi's house. That explains why so many tax collectors are present. Levi's a tax collector. Who's he going to know? Who's going to be willing to spend any time with him? Again, the Jews think he's a traitor. So the only other Jews that are going to spend time with him are the other people that the Jews have outcasted. The other tax collecting Jews. And then the sinners. I put that in air quotes. I know it's a podcast. You couldn't see the air quotes. 
the Jewish people isolate specific sins, certain sins, and they treat them as being despicable. And somebody who commits such sins is labeled a sinner, and normal Jews should have nothing to do with them. That's the picture here. And I can't say that doesn't happen today in the church. We have certain sins that people are fixated on, and we label those things as worse. It's not hard to find common examples, is it? Living in a world right now, the culture of the LGBT movement, somebody who struggles with such a sin would be outcast in some congregations. All sin dams. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's a big sin in the eyes of the world or a little sin. All sin condemns. But anyway, this is giving us here the picture. We have people who think, at least they think decently of themselves. Uh, Again, not unlike what we'd see in our own cultural context, where people, if you ask them, would probably say, I'm a generally good person. That's how they would respond about themselves. It's not what the scripture teaches. It's not the truth of God's word. Not one of us is good. No, not one. Only Christ. But anyway, the scribes are upset with Jesus because he's eating with the outcast. These people have no good social standing amongst the Jews. Why would a Jewish rabbi, why would a teacher who should have respect, why would he go to them? That's their conflict. That's their struggle. If he's going to go to the outcasts, then he must be an outcast. Maybe he's not really for us. Maybe he's not really going to be our Messiah. Jesus responds, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There's a bit of a twofold nature going on with that statement as well, isn't there? On the surface, exactly what he says is true. If you're healthy, you don't need a doctor. You go to the doctor when you're sick, when something's not working correctly. Jesus did not come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners. They need his healing. They need his rescue. They need his saving from sin, death, and the devil. But this is also true in a deeper sense, and invites us to consider it again a little further. Who is righteous? Paul answers this in Romans chapter 3 by saying, No one is righteous, no, not one. And he's quoting from Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3 there, where you can go back, here's verse 3. They have all turned aside, together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. There are no righteous, not when you look at it from the angle of perfection. There is no one righteous. There is only, there are only, sinners. The scribes are also sinners who are in need of a physician just as much as me.
And Jesus came to die for them too. So that's our optional text. Now, the full text then, the regular text, verses 18 to 22. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So we've just had the feast at Matthew's house. And now we see this conversation, instead of feasting, about fasting, which fantastically in English are one letter apart. John's disciples, that would be John the Baptist, as well as the Pharisees, at this point are fasting. Now we're not told when this is. The Pharisees, some of them had their very specific, will fast this day and this day of each week. Or this could be in preparation for a feast. We're not told in the text. What we are told is they've noticed that Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. And they bring up the question. They ask, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but yours do not fast? Jesus' response is going to be a conversation basically about a wedding party. You're getting ready for a wedding. As long as the groom is there, you don't fast. So wedding customs of the time, the groom would prepare the home where he and his bride will then live for the rest of their lives together. He would, once the house is prepared and ready, he would go and retrieve her as well as anyone with her, and he would have perhaps his own men with him. He would bring her back to the home, and then they would begin a week-long celebration. And they're going to eat food and drink wine seven days. They're going to have a feast. They're going to party together, a wedding festival. Jesus uses this picture. While the groom's there, you don't fast. It's not the time to fast. While the groom's there, you enjoy the feast. Eventually, though, the groom will go away. That seven-day feast is going to end. The groom and his bride, they're going to go enjoy a year-long honeymoon. I'll let you look that one up in the Old Testament. And then the party's over. And then the people will fast. But you don't fast while the groom's there. You party. You celebrate. And so, Jesus is our groom. While he's here, we don't fast. We celebrate. So the disciples had Jesus present. They had the groom with them, and they celebrated. They rejoiced. That's the picture. He's not going to be there forever, though. The bridegroom, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Crucifixion. Christ's death, burial in the tomb, but also his resurrection. 
Jesus lives. But there is, there is a period of mourning, certainly. And it wouldn't be hard to imagine the disciples on Holy Saturday fasting in prayer to the Lord, wondering what's next. Still trying to figure out who Jesus is. Jesus now gives two metaphors to help us understand. One is about clothing. If you've ever had a hole in a piece of clothing and you take a patch and you patch the garment so that you can still keep it, still use it, it's not as common today. We're in a throwaway culture. If you have a hole in a piece of garment, you usually just throw it out. Unless jeans. Jeans, for some reason, have a reputation to even be sold with holes in them already. That's another story. But the picture is, if you take that new cloth, that new fabric, and you sew it on to cover up the hole in the old fabric, which is already shrunk, but the new fabric isn't, when you wash that new fabric, that new patch, on the old garment, it's going to shrink. And when it shrinks, all those stitches that you put in to hold the old garment together in place, all that's going to get pulled on, all of that's going to get stretched, and that tear that was already there, well, it's going to get worsened as that patch shrinks and tears at it more. The same with wine. A wineskin, so made from animals, for example, when wine is fermenting, that process is going to be difficult on the leather, on the container. And so you get a new container for new wine so that the strength of the new container can hold up to the fermentation process. But if you take the wineskin that's already been through that several times and is now old and not in good a shape, and you try to put new wine in, that fermentation process is going to destroy that old wineskin and then when the wineskin breaks, the wine spills out. So you've lost both the wineskin and the wine. Jesus' picture here is of their understanding of salvation. I don't want to make this an Old Testament, New Testament distinction because Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. He is Yahweh. His name means Yahweh saves. But rather, this is about the Pharisees and their expectations. Because God in the Old Testament never commanded fasting. You'll see it. It's there. It seems to be an approved thing. But it's not like God said you must fast two days a week. And so if you're going to take your man-made idea of what the Messiah is, and you're going to try and take the Messiah when he comes and smush him into your man-made idea, it's just going to break it all. You won't get the Messiah, you won't see him when he comes, and your old way of life is going to get beat up anyway. You'll lose both. This is the English expression of trying to fit a square peg into a round hole, or round peg into a square hole, whatever. Jesus is not the man they thought he was going to be. But thanks be to God, he is so much more. Jesus didn't come to rescue them from Rome. 
Jesus didn't come to observe all 613 or however many different laws the Pharisees had. He came to keep God's law perfectly in order to destroy sin, death, and the devil. And he did it. Yeah, Rome continued on for a couple of centuries. Oppression of the Jewish people continued on for a couple of centuries. And as that shifted and morphed, oppression of Christians has it's been around for 2,000 years now. Jesus didn't come to rescue from an earthly oppressor because if you save a man from one, he's just going to become oppressed by another. There will always be another in this broken world. But Jesus prepares for us a place that is not of this world, a place that knows not sin or death. He prepares it for you. Don't try and fit Jesus into an old model that man made up for themselves anyway. Let Jesus tell you who he is and rejoice to see him as the God of the Old Testament, fulfilling all the promises that he made from long ago, which is such good news to us because it gives us the confidence, the hope, of knowing that all the promises he's made to us, well, he's faithful, and he will keep them too. Yeah.